Uh, hey, I'm Jason, if we haven't met. Welcome to the Tuesday night edition of South Bend City Church. And uh, if you've been around for a little bit, you know about the conversation we've been having. We've been talking about this big idea in the book of Genesis that human beings are called to bear the image of God. And if you've been here for a little bit, maybe you're tired of this because we've been in this idea for a while now. We keep coming back to it. But frankly, I'm not apologizing for it because I want to burrow this idea deeply into this community because I think it's so much more biblical and so much more helpful than many of the messages that we've gotten about what it means to be human and what God is up to in this whole project. So that's why we keep digging into that. And we've, we've hit some topics along the way. And some of those topics um, have been kind of challenging. And so, for example, last week, we focused on questions that revolve around race and racial injustice in the church. And I'm really, really grateful to be part of a community that's willing to tackle that kind of conversation. I know that for some, that kind of thing can feel like there are divisions like out there and that that conversation just sort of imports them here. And I've, I've heard that from a couple who maybe are wrestling with that. Um, and I think I understand why that feeling can come up, but I guess I would say that there's a huge difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. And peacekeeping is not what we are called to. If peacekeeping is the kind of thing that you sort of ignore or try to tell yourself things are okay when they're not. And the fact is that um, lines of race are, are one of the ways that we're discovering like we're not okay in the world. Um, there's injustice in the world. And different people have different experiences of the world that we are creating, and we need to hear that, right? And so um, I'm really grateful for that, and I'm grateful to have voices as uh, mature and, and helpful as uh, Zach and Angela, who shared with us last week. And I think it's actually a very brave thing to stand up in front of your church and to lead that kind of conversation. So I just want to affirm that and celebrate that. Uh, next week, we're going to wrap up this whole topic, and it's not going to be a sermon week. It's going to be much better. Okay, you're there, good. It's gonna be um, a sort of prayer, reflection, and communion week. So there's a famous theologian who once said that you should pray with a, with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. Like our praying and our practicing as a faith community should always live at the intersection between like the faith that we receive and the world that we live in every day. And we're quite literally gonna do that next week. So we're gonna walk in, and I don't wanna spoil it, but I want you to know what to expect so you can like make sure that you're here. We're literally gonna walk in and we're gonna have copies of the South Bend Tribune all over the room. And we're going to spend some time taking a look at the actual world that we are living in and creating right now, like this week, the year 2018, and ask ourselves, where do we see signs that the, that the image of God is being born well in the world? And where do we see signs that it's not? And where do we see signs that we are honoring the image of God in one another? And where do we see signs that we are not? And then after some of that reflection and ex exploration, we're going to come to the communion table with Jesus for the bread and the cup. I'm really excited about it, so don't miss that coming next week. Before we get there, though, uh, one final sort of topical angle on bearing the image of God. Movie quiz. Can anybody name this movie? The subject is TPS reports, and the quote is, yeah, did you get the memo? Yeah, office Space. We got it. Yeah, you were right on it, man. That's great. Any Office Space fans in the room? A few? Excellent. Any fans of the TV show, The Office? Talk to me a little bit. Okay, that's good. Is there anybody in the room who's like a fierce loyalist to the UK original version of The Office with Ricky Gervais? Yeah? Okay. Dan is. That's good. Excellent. Dan's my guy. Um, yeah, how about this? Any fans of the TV show Silicon Valley? Yeah, now I know what kind of community we have here. That's great. Uh, I can't in good conscience pastorally recommend the TV show, but it's great and you should definitely watch it. What I'm getting at here is uh, we live in an era where we've gotten very good at the satire of the workplace. 
We've gotten really good at laughing at the peculiar thing that we've created, which is the modern uh, workplace, right? And I think that's a really good thing. I think it's healthy to laugh at it. I'll say that as a person who's had a number of jobs, like I've worked mall retail clothing for three weeks, true story. I've worked book retail, I've worked coffee shop, I've waited tables. I spent one summer doing data entry at a trucking logistics firm on the west side of South Bend where I literally just typed in stacks of forms for eight hours a day. And the, the building was stuck between two train tracks and it was like a 10 foot wide building with trains going on both sides and when the trains would come by, you would have to put your clients on hold because you couldn't hear them and they couldn't hear you. Uh, I've worked maintenance and kitchen staff at a summer camp where occasionally in the middle of the night, the camp director would knock on the maintenance guy's house door and tell us, that the septic tank in the women's cabin had clogged in the middle of the night and we would take shovels and fix it. Uh, I've worked, um, I said waiting tables already, uh, I've been a graduate student and I've been a pastor, which means all sorts of different things. So as a resident of the modern workplace, I will just say I'm grateful that we can laugh at that stuff and sort of shake it off a little bit. However, what about the people who love their work and who find great meaning in it? Or what about uh, those of us who um, realize that we're going to spend a lot of our life in a workplace, whether we realize it or not? Uh, in the Western world, the average person will spend 90,000 hours of their life working. That's like a third of your entire life. A third of all the hours that you will be on planet Earth working. And um, what if there's something actually sacred and profoundly meaningful in our work? And if that's true, and a community like ours doesn't name that and celebrate that, then what a tragic sort of loss. What a devastating blind spot in our conversation if we don't celebrate that, right? And by the way, for the rest of this conversation, when I say work, um, let's have our hands on a big, broad definition of work. Like whatever you have your hands on day to day. You may be actually showing up at some kind of thing called a job that pays a salary and has regular hours. You may be taking care of kids. You may be wrangling schedules and getting them back and forth around town. You may be caring for a loved one who's aging or not physically well, who needs you there time and time again. You may be volunteering in your community or taking care of your neighbors. I don't know what, what, what this word means in your life, but virtually all of us have our hands on some particular things day to day that we could think about when we talk about work, right? So that's what I want to explore, and uh, I want to ask if there's anything sacred going on in our work, if there's anything to celebrate in our work, and if this idea of the image of God can in any way illuminate or enlighten or encourage us in all of that, right? So the, the text that we keep looking at is Genesis chapter 1. This is verse 26. Let's hear this again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we've, we've already talked about how this is important, but I want to reassert that case again with a new angle on this uh, few sentences that we keep looking at here. At this time and this place, if you're going to underscore the importance of a big idea, you don't have bold or italics or red that you can put on the text, right? Like you don't, you don't have those ways of sort of underscoring the importance of a particular line in the story that you were telling, right? But what you do have is the fact that the real estate on the page is really, really valuable, right? Because written words, the materials of written words are hard to come by and very expensive and hard to transport. And so if you're going to use space on the page, it costs something. And so if you're going to repeat something, 
That seems to be a way of saying this is really, really important. So when you hear, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and then you read, so God created mankind in his image, and then you read, in the image of God, he created them. It's the writer's way of like putting neon on this idea and saying, please don't miss this, right? Now we could ask, um, what does it mean to bear the image? And we've been sort of exploring that for a while. Like, what does the text mean when it says that humanity bears the image of God? Uh, Augustine, a bishop uh, centuries ago in the church, argued that what this is describing is humanity's peculiar capacity for rationality, like reason. Like we have this unique thing in the world, which is to be able to think critically about the world that we inhabit, to reflect on our past and anticipate the future and talk about logic. Like he thought maybe that's what we're talking about when we say that human beings bear the image of God. Uh, some people looking at the context have argued that this is sort of um, a nod to a, a practice in the ancient world where a king or an emperor with a far-reaching kingdom would erect statues of himself in far parts of the kingdom to remind the subjects of his rule in the world, right? Or you've got uh, another idea that comes from a guy named Richard Middleton, which is a spin on that, but is to say that it's not so much statues but living, breathing viceroys that were sort of put out there by these kings in these far-reaching kingdoms so that you had a living, breathing representative of the king in that part of the territory, right? So you, you can kind of poke around on that. But today, just to keep sort of digging in, I want to propose that one thing we could do to figure out what this means is to ask, what do we know about God in the first 25 verses of Genesis? If verse 26 says we're here to look a little bit like God, to live a little bit like God, there's something about what it means to be human that echoes what it is to be God, then we could ask, well, then what's God like, right? Like, what do we figure out from God thus far? And so I want to just uh, read verses 1 through 25 for you, but I'm going to draw now from a, um, a version of this text called The Message. And the reason I'm doing that is because um, this is a poetic text. It has a sort of energy and direction to it. And I think that uh, Peterson's translation does a nice job of sort of capturing the energy and direction of this. So let me share this with you. And if you want to close your eyes, that's great. If you want to kind of let this wash over you, that's great. If you want to read it on the screen, that's great. But just see if you can like feel the current of these first 25 verses as we ask like, what is God like in this text, okay? Here we go. First, this. God created the heavens and earth. All you see all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and light appeared. And God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. And God named the light day, and he named the dark night. It was evening, it was morning, day one. God spoke sky. In the middle of the waters, separate water from water. And so God made sky. He separated the water under sky from the water above sky. And there it was. He named the sky heavens. It was evening. It was morning. Day two. God spoke separate. Water beneath heaven gather into one place and land appear. And there it was. And God named the land earth. He named the pooled water ocean. God saw that it was good. God spoke, earth, green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there it was. Earth produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. And God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. God spoke, lights come out, shine in heaven's sky, separate day from night, mark seasons and days and years, lights in heaven's sky to give light to earth. And there it was. God made two big lights, the larger to take charge of day and the smaller to be in charge of night. 
and he made the stars. God placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night to separate light and dark. And God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, day four. God spoke, swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over earth. God created the huge whales, all the swarm of life in the waters and every kind and species of flying birds. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. It was evening, it was morning, day five. God spoke, earth, generate life, every sort and kind, cattle and reptiles and wild animals, all kinds, and there it was, wild animals of all kinds, of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug, and God saw that it was good. Now, I wonder if just hearing that, you sense like some energy or direction in it. I know like when I hear that, I think, first of all, this is clearly a text that's meant to move us, not just like mentally or intellectually. When, you, when a writer reverts to poetry, it's like they're trying to get their hands on something that has more dimensions to it, right? And they're trying to kind of move you into the experience of it. And I, I feel like the writer here is trying to move us into a sort of meditation on the energy and the direction of creation, the sort of energy and direction that God brings to things, right? Like you might even say that like in this text, God is the engine which is sort of moving things toward greater and greater life. There's um, a moment where there seems to be no possibility. There's like inky darkness. There's emptiness. And then all of a sudden, God starts speaking and possibilities start being created. And then possibilities start getting wooed into their actuality. Right? So, so you have, um, for example, like a space that's created, like an ocean or land or a sky, which seems to be sort of humming with potential in this text. Like it's begging to be filled with some kind of life. There's a potential there, right? Like you walk into an empty room and you can just sense what this room is, is wanting to have happen within it. And you have oceans and land and sky and they want to be filled with life. And so then God woos it toward that so that there's actually teeming fish in the waters and herds and plants on the land and whole flocks of birds in the sky. You get that sort of energy out of it, the, the direction of it, that possibilities are being created where there weren't any, and then those possibilities are being called into actuality, like potential is moving into reality in this text. Now, uh, there's a writer and a scholar and a mystic that I love to read uh, his name is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, which is a great name to drop at a dinner party. Um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And Chardin is um, working in the era sort of, on, in the early stages of evolutionary science and theory. And he's also a Jesuit priest. So this is interesting. This is, he's, he's way ahead of his time. The fact that he is sort of straddling um, his Christian faith and uh, the sort of scientific moment he's living in. And he's excavating uh, precursor to homo sapien man and he's in places like China and uh, Chardin is one of these people early on who senses there's nothing to be afraid of in this scientific perspective on the material way that we got here on, on the sort of me mechanism that brought bodies to bear in the world he sees actually all of this reason to actually praise God to stand in even greater wonder of how it is that God has brought this world to the moment that we see right now and so um, so he writes uh, sometimes kind of mystically kind of poetically, and I, I love to read his stuff. And at one point he writes um, what's sometimes translated as a mass upon the altar of the world. 
So he's a Catholic priest, and like a good Catholic priest, he should be celebrating the Mass, he should be doing the Eucharist, right? But, um, but in his training, that means it should happen on a properly consecrated altar in a church somewhere. That's what a good priest does, right? And yet he finds himself nowhere near a Catholic church with an altar when he's out in the far reaches of China or whatever, excavating these, uh, these, these bones, these fossils in the ground. And so he, he basically says in this poem, he says, since I find myself again without an altar, without a proper altar, I will instead offer a mass upon the altar of the world. And then he just writes with fire for like 14 pages. And uh, it's this sort of poetic sort of hymn of praise to God. And in the middle of that, he writes this. Once upon a time, men took into your temple the first fruits of their harvest, the flower of their flocks. But the offering you really want, here he's speaking to God, the offering you mysteriously need every day to appease your hunger, to slake your thirst, is nothing less than the growth of the world born ever onwards in the stream of universal becoming. Woo! You like that? I love that. The, the, your thirst is nothing less than the growth of the world born ever onwards in the stream of universal becoming. In other words, like, God, the thing that you actually delight in, the thing that fills you with joy, is when you see this world moving further and further toward what it was meant to be. When you see potential being turned into actuality. When you see possibility become reality. When you see things that were sort of set in motion moving in the direction of what they are actually here for. That's actually what God gets delighted in. Which I, I like that because this is a big expansive definition of what God is up to in the world, right? Which to me only makes sense because if God is God in any meaningful way, then we have to have definitions that are way bigger than our little religious boxes that we think that the thing that God's most excited about is that we got to church for an hour, right? Like if God is actually God in any meaningful sense, then we must have sort of, sort of, sort of idea that, that God is in touch with and moving through and delighted in and acting out in the big universal story of creation that we see out there in the cosmos, right? And this is Chardin's sort of like mystical delight to write this prayer, this, this poem of praise. Now hang with me because we're talking about work. I promise we're going we're gonna to bring all this together. Um, so I hold this sort of way that Chardin names like what we see here in Genesis 1, right? That possibilities are being created where there weren't any and then they're going from possibility to reality and somehow God seems to be like wrapped up in that work and Chardin says that's what you love, God, right? And there's another uh, writer named Khalil Gibran who is a Lebanese poet and he's writing in the first couple of decades of the 1900s. And um, now here he writes a poem about work, and this is speaking uh, sort of horizontally to human audience, but he says this. You work that you may keep pace with the earth and the soul of the earth. For to be idle is to become a stranger unto the seasons and to step out of life's procession that marches in majesty in proud submission toward the infinite. And I bring this in here because I feel like this is sort of the idea that connects all of this, that like God delights in moving creation toward what it wants to be, right? There's an energy and a direction to the universe and to what God is doing in it. And Gibran is saying that that's going on whether we're a part of it or not, but to work is actually to participate in that. To put our hands to something, to get our hands on something meaningful in the world is to be a part of that slow progression, uh, majesty and proud submission toward the infinite. Like that's actually what we get to have our hands on when we have our hands in some kind of work. 
Now, I know that your work may not feel like this. It's possible that after a three-day weekend, you got to the office this morning, or you woke up to get the kids to where they were supposed to be, and you did not have some rapturous exaltation of poetic, mystical praise upon your lips. I understand that, right? It might have felt less like spirituality and more like email or TPS reports, or it might be the fact that you've got two kids and one of them's in dance and one of them's in soccer, and they have practice at the exact same time at exact opposite corners of the county, and there's no physical way to make it happen, but you will find a way to make it happen because you are a parent, right? It may be uh, schedules, it may be lunches for school, it might be the, the very, very hard work of caring for someone who needs your help. It might mean taking care of customers' incessant needs who won't shut up. It might mean actually cleaning toilets. It might mean digging your hands into dirt. It may mean fixing things that are broken and none of that feels super spiritual. You aren't like busting out like these deep, poetic streams of consciousness about the becoming of the universe. You're just trying to make it till Friday. I understand like that can be the way things actually feel. Like sometimes work doesn't feel very, very spiritual. Sometimes work feels more like spreadsheets. And I know there's some people in the room who love spreadsheets. Hang with me. I'm coming back to you in a moment, right? Um, but it can, it can be that spirituality and spreadsheets, that spirituality and the tedious everyday work feel a thousand miles apart, right? It doesn't feel very poetic, very inspired, very uplifted. But I want to work on, with, on that with you uh, for just a moment. Let's talk about spreadsheets. And for here, for today, I'm kind of using spreadsheets as a stand-in for whatever sort of detail of your work life feels the most removed from anything super inspired or spiritual or exciting, okay? So maybe for you it's not spreadsheets. Maybe spreadsheets actually really get you pumped. Talk to me afterwards, we could use you. <laughs> um, but let's, let's kind of work with this for a moment. Let me talk to you a bit about spreadsheets and the digital version of where they came from. Let me introduce you to a guy named Dan Bricklin. That's Dan, that's the guy who invented the computerized spreadsheet. Aren't you guys pumped for him? He's a good-looking dude, right? Yeah. Be honest. Does it kind of look like the guy you would have thought invented spreadsheets? He does, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. This is Dan Bricklin. In the 1970s, Dan Bricklin is a student at Harvard Business School, and he is sitting in class one day, bored out of his mind, as he watches a professor at the board do the thing that they have done again and again, which they have an actual manually drawn with hands in chalk spreadsheet. And when you change any little variable in that thing, you've got to go through and redo all the math and recalculate every cell on the spreadsheet, which is affected right? This blows my mind as a, as a somewhat young person. I've been reading about the way that an accountant, you know, before Dan Bricklin would spend days on end quite literally with a pencil and an eraser. And the thing they were paid for was to spend hours doing the manual calculations that change the variables when you add something or change something in your spreadsheet, right? And Bricklin is sitting there thinking, you know, the Apple II computer has just come out. And maybe with the Apple II computer, there's a chance to do this completely differently. And so he goes and does some work and he invents a program called VisiCalc, the world's first ever computer spreadsheet program. Now, um, there's a, an accountant in one of the stories that I've read about the origin of the spreadsheet. There's an accountant who is one of the first accountants to discover this. This guy walks into a computer shop in Boston where Bricklin is a student at Harvard, and he sees a prototype of Bricklin's program on an Apple II computer and the accountant reports later that he's excited about it, but there's another possibility that strikes him, which is this. This could be the end of accounting as we know it, right? Like if the thing that you paid an accountant for that took hours and hours and hours literally takes one and a half seconds on a computer, would this be the end of accounting as we know it today? Would that be it? 
But the accountant, uh, in being interviewed about the origin of the spreadsheet and what happened after that, said that if you thought it would have been the end of accounting, you would have never predicted that accounting would explode as an industry with the spreadsheet. And he said there's one reason for that. He said because the, the spreadsheet, which you might think of as this menial sort of not very sexy, not very exciting, sort of rudimentary, gritty, everyday granular detailed tool, the spreadsheet became one of the most powerful implements we have in the world to answer a very important question. The question is, what if? Because for the first time ever, you could project all kinds of future possibilities with the numbers, right? You could swap out any variable. You could be looking ahead at next year's budget, next year's sales projections, next year's needs, next year's square footage, next year's customer base. And for the first time ever, you could just endlessly play with the variables and project all sorts of futures. And this accountant, in talking about the history of the spreadsheet, says nobody would have realized the spreadsheet would be such a powerful tool for what if. The spreadsheet would become about possibility. The spreadsheet would become about taking possibility and moving it into reality. And now, like, the world that we build is possible because of digital spreadsheets, right? I raise that because um, our work can feel like this granular, gritty, detailed, uninspired, unmeaningful thing. And then we turn to the scriptures and we get this big sort of poetic, arcing, energized, directed sort of flow in the world. And those can feel very, very far apart. Like spirituality and spreadsheets can feel a thousand miles apart. Spirituality in your day to day can feel a thousand miles apart when you're in the actual task. But I think, I think um, the possibility for us is to ask ourselves, like, what potential is being created in our work? Is there anything about what you do that creates any kind of potential in the world that wasn't there before you did it? Is there anything about what you do that takes any kind of possibility and moves it closer to a reality for anybody in the world today? And if you find yourself doing any kind of work that creates any kind of possibility for good, if you find yourself doing any kind of work that moves any potential in something toward a reality, then I actually think that you're on holy ground. Like, I actually think that you are doing the kind of thing that God does in the world. If anything that you do creates any kind of possibility for greater good in the world, if anything you do takes any, anything latent, anything unrealized or unexpressed that is waiting to be expressed and it helps it be expressed, if it's good, if it's true, if it's beautiful, if it's the thing that the thing wants to be and you help it get there, you are on some kind of holy ground, even if it feels like the most granular, gritty, unpleasant little detailed kind of stuff. I think about like... Um, one of the longest and most important stories in the scripture uh, that we are quick to chalk up as a religious story and then sort of divorce it from our work, but I think that's not actually what's going on in that story. And it's the story of a guy named Joseph, and we've talked about him before. So the story of Joseph is chapters 37 to 50 in the book of Genesis, later in the same book that we're looking at right now. And by the way, it's one of the longest stretches in all of the Bible where God never speaks. Read Genesis 37 to 50. All of those chapters in the Bible, right? Like God's word, the thing we call that, right? And God never speaks. And it's essentially the story of a young man with big dreams to do big things who finds himself installed in a government position where he will manage the resources of the nation so that during a famine, people will have what they need. That's not just a story in Scripture. That's a story that takes up 13 chapters in Scripture. 
And God never speaks. It's what you might call a secular story in the scripture of a man doing ostensibly secular work. But the fact is he showed up, he did it well, and because he managed the details, the whole nation of people had what they needed during a time of famine. I wonder about um, whether in your work you've ever thought about what kind of possibility is being created or what kind of potential is being realized. Like, are you working with kids? Are you working with students? Are you a teacher? Are you a coach? Are you a parent? Are you a step-parent? Are you a godparent? Are you a babysitter? Are you an uncle? Are you an honorary aunt? I don't know, but like, are you working with kids in any way? And is anything you're doing, doing anything to help what they are here to be get expressed in the world? Are you doing anything that might help woo or coax that out of them? See some talent sort of brought to the surface. See some confidence brought to bear. See some vision for their future begin to be realized in their life. If you're doing anything that helps a person go from potential to reality, you're on holy ground. You don't need to look for it to become more spiritual. You don't need for it to be more endorsed by somebody who's spiritual. You're already on something that's intrinsically holy. Like you have your hands on it. You're already doing God's work in the world. Are you pushing paper? Are you running numbers? Are you actually doing the spreadsheet thing every day? And does it feel, um, I don't know, does it feel like black and white compared to like the color of Genesis 1? But is it possible that somewhere down the causal chain of the work that you do, if you sort of run the dominoes down from the work that you do in your day to day, is it possible that somewhere down the line somebody's able to get a home that they wouldn't have been able to get without the financing they needed? Is it possible somebody has a job because a business got started because of the financing they needed? Is it possible that a church moved into a building because there was money available to reform the building? Like, is there anywhere down the causal chain of the work that you do that you see some kind of possibility becoming a reality? And if that thing that's possible is good, is it possible that you're already on holy ground, that you're already doing like an intrinsically sacred thing? This week, uh, or last week, our team had a meeting here in this space, and I was walking out of the room, and I was looking around at this, this room that I feel like is easy for me to take for granted now. And I was thinking back to a year ago, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when we were getting to know the property developer here at Studebaker, and we were getting to know our own finances as a church because we'd existed for about three minutes at the time. We were trying to figure out how do you project um, what's a responsible amount of money to commit to a lease when you don't have much history. We were trying to work with our landlord to figure out like what's his problem in the building, what's our problem. We were working with two different sets of contractors because we had the landlord's contractors and our contractors and we were working on electrical and trying to find um, an electrician who had time who would come in and do some of the work. And we were sorting out calculations and projections about how much kid space we need relative to how much adult space we need. And by the way, if you've been at the 1015 on Sunday, I know we got it wrong. We're working on it. Um, all kinds of stuff. And frankly, during so much of that work, uh, if I'm being really honest with you guys, the feeling for me was, yeah, I didn't become a pastor to become a project manager for construction projects, right? Like, I don't, I don't have a degree in that. I have a degree in theology. <laughs> we didn't cover that anywhere in my undergraduate or graduate education, right? And I was thinking about um, the moments that I had to remind myself uh, what's sacred about this is the possibility that it's gonna create for what God wants to do in this community, right? And uh, I'm not saying that that like made me start singing like songs of praise at my dining room table as I sat with the spreadsheets. It didn't make it you know, immensely more enjoyable, but it did give me the perspective that I needed to keep at it, right? And I walk around this room today and I think about how much our community has been able to flourish as a church um, because we have a home, you know, because we have a space like this. 
And I thought about all my friends who do work that in fact creates incredible possibilities in the world, but they've never been told that it's sacred. They've never been told that it matters, that it's good and that it's beautiful, but I'm absolutely convinced because I read my Bible, like I'm absolutely convinced that if you are in the work of creating possibilities for good in the world, if you are in the work that takes anything that's potential and makes it real, if that's a good direction, like if it's a good possibility that you are making possible or moving toward reality in the world, then you're absolutely on sacred ground. There's this verse uh, in the New Testament, this phrase that actually shows up twice. And it's funny, um, I used to read it very differently than I do today. A couple of different times in the scripture we read, uh, whatever you do, do it as unto Christ. Or whatever you do, do it as if you're doing it for Jesus, right? And I remember being like in middle school or high school or college and reading that verse and thinking like, so I guess I'm supposed to like pretend in my head that like Jesus is at the data entry job with me and like I don't really like my boss but I'm not supposed to not like Jesus so maybe I like trick my brain out like to pretend that Jesus is the one signing my paycheck and then maybe that'll make me want to work hard. I don't know. Anybody like try to play a game like that before? It doesn't really work very well, at least not in my experience. I've come to read this text uh, very differently uh, today. And I read it because of like what we see in John chapter 1. So this is John, uh, John's gospel, which begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And a little while later in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In other words, that energy and direction that we feel in Genesis 1, that anytime we find ourselves with Christ, we are in fact like in the presence of that energy and direction. So if your work is in any way creating a possibility in the world, don't you know that you are actually there with Christ? If your work is in any way moving potential to reality, if it's turning old things into new things, dead things into living things, if it's creating employment where there wasn't employment, if it's creating a safe place where there wasn't a safe place, if it's creating clarity where there was confusion, whatever, like if, if it's moving things in the right direction, don't you know that you are in the presence of Christ who is always there whenever anything is becoming what it wants to be, what it's here to be? Now, um, I don't know that we can sort of tap into the power of all of this just by hearing somebody talk about it, uh, what I want to propose to you is that this is better accessed through prayer than preaching. And so um, to sort of wrap things up today, I want to invite us into just a little bit of a reflection time. Um, if prayer is not a word that works for you, if God's not a word that works for you, that's okay. Like I still think you could maybe, at least to a certain extent, be a part of this time and just reflect a little bit. And I'm not here to coerce you beyond that. but. I just want to give us the gift of a moment to reflect a little bit about what it is that we have our hands on and what might be at stake in it and the possibility that there's something profoundly sacred about the work that we do. And so, um, so I want to lead us into a little bit of what we call an examine, not an exam, uh, just an examine. Um, there's that pattern in Genesis 1, right? Um, God moves things from potential to actuality and then he steps back and he says what? You guys, some of you caught it. Come on, a little louder, I hear you. It was good, right? 
Yeah, he, he does a little bit of work and he steps back and he says, it was good. Does a little more work, he steps back and he says, it is good. Does a little more work, steps back and says, it is good. And I actually think that many of us in our work have been doing work that God is speaking over and saying, this is good, but we just haven't had time to hear it. We haven't had time to receive that affirmation, to let that sort of deeply settle into our hearts. And so, um, so I want us to just take a moment for a kind of examine like that. Uh, what this means is I'll just sort of uh, throw some prompts out here and, and we can sit and think about them. But the, the full promise of a, an examine is the idea that God would actually sort of be the one leading our thoughts for a bit, right? So if you want to, you know, sort of try to approach that with me, that's great. I promise it won't get weird. Um, but if you want to take a moment and you want to jump into this with me, why don't you do this? Put your feet kind of flat on the floor. Sometimes it helps to just kind of shake your body out a little bit and be present here. Uh, sometimes I'll put my hands on my knees, uh, palms up and open, and that'll just sort of reflect a posture in my heart, which is, God, I want you to actually sort of work with me for the next few minutes, right? And so uh, that being said, we'll put a little sort of background music on, and uh, I'll say a prayer, and then I'll give you some things to chew on here together, okay? God, as we reflect on our work, on the things that we have our hands on, I pray that you would help us to hear whatever affirmation, whatever calling, whatever challenge, whatever conviction we need to hear today. We trust that you are present and that you are for us and that you always speak with love. And now, friends, as you reflect with God, let me ask you, what have you had your hands on lately? Have you had your hands on a desk job? Do you show up and put your hands to a computer or pick up a phone? Have you been working in a factory or in a field? Have you been raising kids or caring for a loved one? Have you been volunteering? Have you launched into a new venture? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you finding investors and dreaming new dreams? Are you transitioning from the things that you've had your hands on for a very long time? Are you looking forward to something new or are you not sure what's next? What have you had your hands on lately? What possibilities are being created in the world because of what you have your hands on? What potentials are being realized? What possibilities are being actualized because you have your hands on the work that you do? You might need to take a, a, a wide view of your work. Maybe you don't immediately see what good it does in the world, but perhaps if you just sort of pan out and think about that causal chain, those dominoes that fall, it may be down the line from what you do or where you are, but perhaps there's something that's being realized in the world because of the work that you do. 
And as you think about the possibilities that are being created, about the potentialities that are becoming real in the world because of your work, may you hear deeply in your spirit the word of God who sees what you do and says, it is good. May you hear the word of God who reflected on a world with image bearers in its midst and saw all that he had created and said, it is very good. And now let me ask, is there anything that isn't good in your work? Is there anything about what you do or how you do it that doesn't move things toward greater flourishing or greater life? Is there anything that actually moves things in the other direction? Are there any possibilities for good that are shut down by your work? Or are there any possibilities of brokenness or darkness that are magnified by what you do or how you do it? And as you sit with that, um, let me remind you, it's never for shame, for browbeating that we ask that kind of question, but only so that the loving voice of God could refine us and lead us into new possibilities because he wants to do the very same thing with us that he's doing in the world. Taking us from what could be, what wants to be, into a good and beautiful future where it is. And lastly, as you have your hands on all of those things in the world and you think about the good and the bad of what you do and how you do it, Do you feel that you could use a teacher? That if we are fumbling our way toward this creative work in the world, do we long for a teacher who knows what it is to create possibilities in the world and to move those possibilities into reality? And if we long for that teacher, is it possible that Jesus is a very good candidate? God, we badly want our lives to matter. We want our work to mean something. For some of us, it really does, it feels that way. We're connected to what's important and meaningful and we celebrate that and we say thank you. And for others of us, we may have a hard time finding that sense of connection in our work. I pray that you would call us into deeper prayer in greater reflection. Maybe we need to get quiet for a bit longer to hear your voice as you speak and say it is good. Or maybe we need to make some changes about what we do or how we do it. I pray that you would make us brave to do so because with all of those hours, with so much of our life wrapped up in our work, I pray we wouldn't waste it, but that we'd see it for the holy 
and profoundly sacred thing that it is. God, may we look a little bit like you in all the things we do and all the things that we have our hands on. May you grow us up in that expression. We pray through Christ. Amen.